The Fred Minnick Show is brought to you by Beeline. Visit findyoursiffingpoint.com, by Michter's American Whiskies, and by 291 Colorado Whiskey. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fred Minnick Show. Woo, we got football coming up. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Soon we'll be having shotgun formations and eye formations and safeties cracking down on the on the slants and nose guards drilling through the center and tackling the quarterback. <laughs> I can't wait. And on the show today, I brought in future NFL Hall of Famer Jared Allen. We talked about COVID, what's it, what it's going to be like. We talked about uh, who his favorite quarterbacks were to hit. Oh my gosh, this was a great, great, great interview. And here is uh, a little hint. Jared's got some bourbon chops. This guy, he knows his bourbon. So enjoy this interview and enjoy the return of the NFL, the National Football League. Da, 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 da. But first, a word from our sponsors. At Michter's Distillery, our passion is making the finest bourbon, rye, and American whiskey possible. When you only produce very small batch and single barrel whiskey as we do, each and every barrel has to be perfect. No detail is too small for our production team. From careful attention to the 18-month or more air-dried wood used in the construction of our barrels, to entering our distillate into the barrel at the costlier or lower barrel entry proof of 103 so that it's smoother, to heat cycling our barrel houses, to our signature filtration protocol, we spare no expense in pursuing our goal of making the greatest American whiskey. And no Michter's gets bottled until our master distiller, Dan McKee, and our master of maturation, Andrea Wilson, say it's just right. Michter's Fort Nelson Distillery in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, is open for tours and tastings. Book your visit on our website and stop by the bar at Fort Nelson for a world-class cocktail. For more information, follow us on social media at Michter's Whiskey, go to michters.com, or visit your favorite bartender. Michter's Distillery. It's all about the whiskey. Imagine this, an experience centered around five Kentucky Bourbon Trail craft tour distilleries in northern Kentucky, the gateway to Kentucky bourbon. Add five amazing bourbon-centric bars and five delicious bourbon-focused restaurants, cultivating the freshest takes and culinary delights, and you are on the beeline. Start your trip today at findyoursippingpoint.com. 291 Colorado Whiskey aims to create a one-of-a-kind, bold, and beautiful Colorado Whiskey. Rugged, refined, rebellious. Distillery 291 is an award-winning small-batch whiskey distillery located in Colorado Springs, Colorado, nestled in the shadow of Pikes Peak. Owner and founding distiller Michael Myers grew up on family farms in Georgia and Tennessee, across a countryside defined by rolling hills, horses, and whiskey. He set out to create a flagship whiskey that evoked the Wild West. A cowboy walking into a bar saying, give me a whiskey, and the bartender slamming down a bottle, a bottle of 291 Colorado whiskey. Find a bottle near you at 291coloradowhiskey.com Ride it like you stole it, drink it like you own it, live fast, drink responsibly. And joining the Fred Minnick Show on the Beeline Hotline, if you want to learn about Northern Kentucky, go to findyoursippingpoint.com. Jared Allen, how you doing, sir? Oh, I'm good. How are you guys? 
Thanks Man, for having me on. Absolutely. Listen, I got to tell you, I I love the way you play football. And if you are not a first ballot Hall of Famer, then there is something wrong with the world because you played football right. I mean, they need to give you they need to give you a vote. <laughs> I mean, I'll take a vote. I'll take a vote. I mean, I I feel like I got an, I've got enough got more knowledge of the game than some of those guys voting. I'll tell you that. But man, you yeah. you you were you were relentless. You were absolutely relentless. I just tried to have fun, honestly. Uh, you know, I, I used to have a coach used to tell me, he said, you know, the more you put yourself around the ball, the more plays you can make. And uh, I always felt that, you know, if people were going to pay their hard-earned money to come watch me play and, and to be entertained, the least I can do is go out there and uh, leave it all out between the lines and, uh, you know, give them a show. And then, you know, just, just trying my – you know, the way I grew up is just constant drive to be the best. No matter what I do, I want to be the best at it. And so just having that never satisfied mentality, I think fans appreciate it because I think they saw it was authentic. Like it wasn't out there for the money. I was literally out there because I enjoyed and loved playing football and uh, had fun doing it. Yeah, that is true. But man, like when it, I mean, you look like you would like, um, when you, you, when you hit a quarterback, it was like, Man, he made hit that guy's mama hurt. You hit him I so hard. You, I, I enjoyed what I did a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so who who was your favorite quarterback to hit? Oh, I mean, you got to say like you know Peyton, the, the best, right? Whoever the best was. So Peyton Manning, Tom Brady. Uh, you know, I used to love Philip Rivers, and I had so much fun because he would talk trash. Cutler, when I played against him, you know, you would talk trash. Uh, you know, Drew Brees, because guys that are like, they get rid of the ball so fast. It's such a more of accomplishment once you get to them. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, but, yeah, you got you got to take the Peyton and the Brady's of the world. You know, Favre, one, the one sack I had on him when, when, before we became teammates. So, you know, Aaron Rodgers, another another great one. Um, and guys like Aaron were fun because they, they – They'll hold that ball. Even though Aaron gets rid of the ball crazy fast, but he's so talented that he knows he can make every throw too. So he'll give you that extra second just to, you know, instead of taking a 10 yard, he'll take a 30 yard over the top. So, you know, being in the same division with him for so many years was a blast because, you know, we got to go back and forth a lot. Well, that was, that was like uh, watching, watching you play the Packers. It was like, you had a little, you had like an extra level. Was that, was that the team that you just, you hated the most or you love to just show up for the most? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was both. I think, uh, well, Hey, Lambeau field is so nostalgic, right? You go into Lambeau and it's just, it's amazing. There's certain stadiums in the, in the league that are just iconic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kansas is like that. Uh, Lambeau, obviously. Um, and you just, you go into these stadiums and you just can't help, but you know, feel like all the greats that have played there. And it just gives you kind of a little something extra. Then being division rivals and kind a lot of times, you know, we were all we were both battling for the division lead, and so uh, yeah, it just gave it a little extra. Then I think when they came home, I was more upset because half our fans would like sell their season tickets to Packers fans just to make mm. them, you know big, and it'd be like a Packers home game. So that'd be more pissed off that you know there was more Packer fans than Minnesota fans at our home games. <laughs> Man, so I you know, had yeah, in the, in the, when they, when you're at home and the defense is pumping the crowd and your offense can't hear in your own place. Like what the heck? Uh that's oof. Yeah, that's 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 no. I mean, that reminds me. I'm like I'm. Like, I was a Brewers fan. I was never a Packers fan, but I was a Brewers fan, and and the Brewers fans would always sell their tickets to the Cubs. I'm like, why? I mean, because they would pay. And I mean, listen, yeah. from a financial standpoint, 
when you get your whole season tickets paid for for one game, I hey, I get it. But yeah, yeah. that's that's the it's like you we really needed our fans there. So I think uh, well, when Brett came, that all changed. Nobody was selling a ticket when Brett came. What was what was uh, Brett like as a teammate? He he strikes me as. You know, there's these stories about him like farting in huddles and just doing just ridiculous <laughs> stuff in the locker room. What kind of teammate was he? Brett was amazing, uh, honestly. So like, I I didn't know. You know, obviously, I knew the the mystique of Brett before he came there. Played, I knew how great he was. Um, but you didn't get to, you got to see why he was great. I mean, there was several times where I would text him or call him, "Hey, man, you want to go? Like, good Friday, we're gonna go. Out, you know, I was gonna go hunt. You want to come or, or you know, whatever." And uh, he'd be at the facility 8 30 9 30 10 o'clock at night you know that dude knew the offense inside and out i watched that guy throw a backside slant while, while looking the other way countless times he knew where everybody was at and knew everybody's job um his, his work ethic was second to none his enthusiasm was second to none and he's the type of guy that elevated everybody's game honestly um and that's what i think that's what true leaders and true you know, there's, I, I always say there's, there's great talents in, in, in sports, right? And there's those few that are generational. Brett was a generational talent, and uh, being able to play with him was, was, was special because you got to see why. You got to see the work ethic. You got to see the knowledge. You got to see the genuine love for his craft. You know, it's interesting. Like, he also brought, he also brought like, this, like, kind of, like, a different, like, level of, like, media. I remember when he joined the team, and it's like people were talking about the Minnesota Vikings in a much different, you know, fashion than they were previously. Like suddenly there was, you know, the, they were covering all the little details of the team nationally and not just statewide. <laughs> yeah, we became honestly we became a major sports market because of him. You know, Minnesota was was kind of like one of those in between markets, and uh, when Brett came, he was a major sports market. You know, helicopters following him from the airport. I mean, every every move i mean every game was a was a flex game of national tv and um and you know again that's the kind of power he had and that's you know so to be able to play with a guy like that you know it's you it's him it's peyton it's brady you know it's guys like that that shape and influence a sport that it just it makes it fun to say you played on the team with him well i bet he says the same about you man you're I, 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 you know you you i believe you're generational as well watching you play defense and just seeing you crush guys, I mean, it was just, it was a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because I'm a, I was a defensive guy. I love, I love defense, and I hate, I hate the way, the where the game is going now. It's a shotgun oh. this, shotgun that. It's like whatever happened to the eye formation, running it down your throat kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, and honestly, that's why New England wins so much, right? Look at their formula; they still run the ball. You know, Brady being one of the best quarterbacks of all times, if not the best quarterback of all time. Um, that dude, his, he's, he's a play action guy, right? He's going to hand the ball off and play action down the field. Uh, so it just shows how, how important a running game still is. But yeah, it's a, it's a different, I mean, I remember that it shifted when I got in or, you know, when I got out versus when I got in, I mean, we, I came into with the chiefs against, you know, Marty ball out in San Diego, where you had 300 pound tight ends and they're running power down your face. Hardest I've ever been hit in my life was Zach Crockett in the goal line. I was like feeling my, you know, you get hit in the face with the basketball on a cold day. You're not really <laughs> sure if it's still there. That's what it felt like when he hit me. I was just like, ah. <laughs> well, man, like, like, like today, if you played, I feel like you would get called for roughing the cuticle. You know, I mean, you just like your oh, yeah. style of ball isn't going to fly today. <laughs> Well, I remember I got fined one time. I got brought into the league and the uh, league office. 
for the way I tackle the quarterback. And uh, I, I told him, like, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, I'm coming around the edge. I, I, I didn't, I mean, I hit him where, I hit him where I got to hit him. I got him on the ground. And, uh, and I was, and I was getting taken to the ground at the time. And I, and I fell and I kind of whipped into the quarterback's like thigh. And uh, they told me I needed to learn how to fall differently. And that, you know, you had to now, now when you tackle a quarterback, you have to, you know, grab them and then you have to rotate yourself in the air because you can't, you can't let God forbid you land on top of anybody in football. So yeah. I, that's where they, where they told me to learn how to fall differently. I knew the game was shifting and, uh, you know, I was becoming a dinosaur, you know, that just kept eating the fives. I was like, well, they'll have to kick me out before I change the way I play. <laughs> and of course you retired famously on a horseback and, uh, and, you know, here we are to, to celebrate your amazing career uh, with a little bit of bourbon. Show everybody what, what we have you. Kind of like na- name it off. So, yeah. All right. So I got, I, I, I've only had, I've only had the barrel. I haven't had some of these. So the red, uh, the red breast 27 year old. Yeah. We'll, the- we'll save that one last. This one's a really special. Yeah. So we got that. I got this uh, Henry McKenna tenure. Mm-hmm. Also very special. Very good one. Yep. By the way, I like how they show up in the little those little sampler bottles like that. So I'm a part of a uh, of a little club in, in Nashville called the Whiskey House, and uh, same nice. time deal. shelves look like that. But what they do is they take a they take a little sampler like this, like the Doomsday sampler, and they put it away. So there's never they'll never run out. They can always compare. So you know, 20 years down the road, someone wants to compare a bourbon, they can always compare them back. Uh, and then there's the Thomas Handy Rye. Yep. Also special, and then the uh, the barrel bourbon five year. Oh, that's actually a that it's actually fifteen year. I screwed up when I was pouring it. Ah, like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, oh, it was a dramatic. Year. It was a dramatic moment there. I got uh, you know I got I got I got fined here in the pouring house. But you know you mentioned the the whiskey house that that place is really special. I know the guys who run it. We've done some charity stuff together. Really great people. Yeah, JB is the best. Um, yeah, and knowledgeable. And one one thing I like about it is great. It's it's not it, which people in you know and maybe certain clubs are different, but you know we got you do you do quarter ounce pours, so you can go there and you can taste a bunch of different stuff and not leave smackered and you know come home and <laughs> people wondering what you're doing. So it's been it's a really cool club. The guys are all great. Uh, with COVID, I obviously haven't been in in a long time, but at least I, I just like it because I get I get the purchasing of a really good bourbon without having to do all the research myself. Well, the good news here is like this is like bringing a little bit you know to you here, and you got a little bit. We're bringing a little awareness about the whiskey house to you. So let's start with the let's start with the Henry McKenna ten year old. Um, right. Now this is this is making my list for bourbons of the century so far. Like I'm doing a ranking out of uh, bourbons that the best bourbons that have come out since the year 2000, and this has won the San Francisco World Spirits Competition twice, where where I'm a judge, and this stuff it, it used to be able to find it for 30 bucks, and when when everybody started talking about it, to include myself, so it's largely, you know, my fault and others' fault. Uh, you could you can't find it anymore, but this this was the one last like hidden gem that we had in American whiskey. And you obviously you know how to taste. You you um, not everybody I get on the show knows how to taste. You know I usually coach him up a little bit, but you've got it down. Yeah, you got to get you got to get. This thing, you taste it with your nose first, right? That's right. <laughs> now I've had Kyle Rudolph on the show. He was a teammate of yours for a little bit, right? He was, yeah. 
I didn't know Kyle was a bourbon guy. He's a big bourbon guy. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Kyle changed that left. Like Kyle was all clean cut, clean shaven, baby face with the big old, you know, white gloves. All of a sudden I got out of there and a year later he's all tatted up. I'm like, that's not you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been the bourbon. No, Kyle's a great guy. Yeah, he does he does a lot for charity, but like his like um his like collection, man, it's solid. He's got he's got the entire Van Winkle line. He's got a he's got a guy on the inside that does all these private barrel picks. Yeah. Man, That's he gets not, a lot of stuff. Yeah, Bourbon really, I mean, it's really taken. It's it's be, I mean, it was like a craft kind of niche deal. And I if I remember correctly, I read was it last year? Didn't was it last year or the year before an American Bourbon won the World Spirits Award too? Yeah, that that's what you're tasting now. This is the this is the one that won it. That is that is amazing. Yeah, so I'm starting you off with the one that uh, that won the competition. And that was in San Francisco. wasn't Wasn't there another uh, competition? Was, was it in? I want to say it was in Scotland or somewhere in Europe. Wasn't? Isn't there a big competition? Over there's there too? there's a shitload of competitions. To be honest with you, um, you know, there's the World Whiskey Awards, but most of these competitions. You know, you don't really get a full like sample of of all the whiskeys because it's a it's a paid it's a paid entry, so okay. it's a little bit like um, you know tennis or golf tournaments where you have to pay to enter. Um, but you know, McKenna McKenna has always done really well. There's been there's been a few more competitions where where uh, some bourbons have beaten scotches. Bourbon used to be like where where bourbon lost its foothold in kind of like the world scene was after War World II. The world basically tried to um, amend uh, what had happened to Scotland, and so they tariffed bourbon, and they kept bourbon from getting an equal foothold in places like France or the United Kingdom or Argentina. And because they were trying to help the United Kingdom uh, basically get money back that they had lost in the war. Yeah. That in turn got the Americans to pursue official designation to make bourbon a unique product in the United States. So in 1964, bourbon was declared a unique product in the United States. And to this day, it has a different value in other countries. And when people have a trade agreement with us, they have to adhere to our terms and conditions of what bourbon is. So, I mean, there's there's a lot yeah. that goes into it. I mean, it's not just an alcoholic spirit that you chug in an alley, oh, no. you know. 51% corn, if I'm correct, right? By God. Damn right. <laughs> so did you, when you were playing, like, do, do you did you, like, sip after a game? Did you guys have bourbon in a locker room? No, so I, I was more, I didn't get into bourbon until kind of, I guess probably more towards the end of my career and maybe after when I retired. Um, you know, I was a typical, like, I like, you know, I, I drink Crown on the Rocks or something like that. And then, you know, you realize, like, that's not any good either. <laughs> so well. I was a Bud Light and Crown guy until I realized I could actually afford to buy nicer stuff. Um, then, uh, so no, I honestly, I, I was more of a beer guy, um, you know, after a game or something like that, a couple cold beers, a nice bottle of wine. Uh, but then, uh, you know, I had some friends, a buddy of mine out in, uh, in Chicago, he's a, he's a big bourbon guy. And so he kind of introduced me to some stuff and then, you know, you, you know, introduced me to somebody else and, 
And then, you know, I got a couple nice bottles of bourbon, you know, for a gift. And you start realize it's like the, I, I was liking it to the first time I got a bottle of Camus for a birthday gift, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I realized I realized the menage a trois I was drinking was just wasn't that good. Um, <laughs> so, then, so then all of a sudden your taste buds change like, wow, OK, this is what good stuff supposed to taste like. And then it just kind of it kind of spiraled, you know, escalated down there. And so, like I said, my buddy out of Chicago, he's he's huge into it. And, you know, it's a nice thing, you know, getting books and reading about it and learning about it and understanding the differences. And one of the cool things was in 2009, which really kind of, you know, changed the way I was looking at it as well. I was over in, uh, in Cape Town, South Africa. And right and at, at Cape Grace, the hotel there, they have one of like the second largest whiskey uh, bars in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Where people, I mean, collections and all that stuff. And we were down there and, and you know, just you know, talking with people and, and down there and, you know, people had private lockers that literally would come once a year, you know, with, you know, five to $10,000 bottles or something or other. And, uh, and I was just like, wow, kind of opened my eyes. Like this is, it's, you're right. It's not just going to the store and buying some Jack Daniels, uh, or this, and then you start, you know, getting, and then as you educate yourself, you take more, obviously you take more pride in it. You understand what you're tasting, how you're tasting it. Um, and just kind of spiraled like that. That's awesome. When you were so when you were when you were playing though it was just beer and crown yeah that sort of thing yeah you know I think everything was pretty generic you know what I mean like I was I was a beer guy we we never you were never drinking in the locker room I guess I shouldn't say that when when I was in Kansas City my uh, my my rookie year you know Vermeil used to love us have be there all day and Friday was a half day so we would get together and watch uh, you know film and. Have a case of you know have a case of beer brought in with food and stuff like that. We'd all hang out, drink beer, watch film. But yeah, I mean, like I said, it was nothing. I was never anything fancy, uh, you know, during my during my heyday. Um, so, but yeah, then like I said, it was, my my taste I should say elevated, you know, later in my career and um, and stuff like that to where, you know, I shouldn't say elevated too much. I was still drinking, you know, banquet beers after the game. So, <laughs> <laughs> well. You know, the, back yeah, in where you come from, you know, <laughs> back in the day, this also was was a painkiller. Um, obviously, not not anymore, but you know, this was this was like what they like in the eighteen hundreds, what have you. If you if you were hurting all the time, this is this is what you were doing. And then, and then if I'm correct, then wasn't bourbon labeled like gut rot back then? Because you there wasn't in the eighteen hundreds, it wasn't a consistent. That's correct. Method of making. Yeah, so that's actually some, but th- and this is actually where the term brand comes from, is that people had a uh, had an understanding of what brands were good, and so they would literally look for the brand, the brand stamp, or the iron on the barrel, and there were a lot of people who would add things like prune juice and tobacco spit, and all kinds of unsavory stuff, and they would. And that was basically to make the change the color and make it last longer. And uh, it was the doctors were like, man, this is not this is not good. Our patients are staying sick because our whiskey isn't any good. So they lobbied for a special law that would allow the distillers to to bottle it at their distillery. It was called the Bottled and Bond Act. And actually what we're drinking now is Bottled and Bond, which means it has to be. 100 proof, at least four years old, distilled at one distilled at one distillery in one distilling season. It's a very, very important law. It's our country's very first consumer protection legislation act. But uh, I'm very impressed of your 
of your whiskey acumen here. I love it. I try. I, I try to be a student of history. And uh, like I said, once I get into something, I kind of might, you know, usually kind of dive all in and uh, like to at least hold the conversation and not look like an idiot. <laughs> well, I, I sent you my tasting book. I need to yes, send you, I need to send you my actual my history book now that I know that you're into history. But most yes, people sure. don't want the history. They're just like, I just want to drink it. I don't, I don't care about all that stuff. No, so. and I think I think that's pretty. I mean, that's kind of what made bourbon popular, right? It became trendy over the last yeah. like five years. It became very trendy. I mean, you look at you look at distillers like Angels Envy, who had this boutique little deal, and then Bacardi buys now was like 180 million, and you know because everybody wants this boutique you know style bourbon now because it is so trendy and. And you do get, and I think for me, that's, you know, in some instances, that's why I like, you know, places like the Whiskey Club or talking to guys like you, because it's not just the, uh, oh, I'm drinking bourbon because it's cool to drink bourbon. Um, you know, every, you know, people generally know about it. I love, I love learning. So, you know, like to, to taste this and I'm, I gotta be honest, I'm usually an ice cube guy, right? At least one cube mm -hmm. and uh, so smooth. You don't even, this is, this is amazing. It's this funny. is get you in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to this say, is, man. This is sleep by seven o'clock smooth. I have had a lot of guests to to you know I've had, I've had a lot of people on my show. I have never had anyone drop the financial situation of a private <laughs> deal between Bacardi and Angels Envy, and it be as close to as accurate as anything that's ever been reported. Holy uh, yeah. shit! <laughs> <laughs> Ah, you do research. I mean, I, you're at a restaurant too, so you got you got you watch you watch what's going on. Amazing. Actually, got a, I got a I got a buddy who has an amazing tequila. He was actually it's not not what we're here for, but he was bequeathed this, bequeathed this amazing tequila from a buddy of his that passed away, and uh, he was starting up. So we, I was I was helping in the early stages, kind of doing some research on that. But um, you know, and that's it. And then then the bourbon thing, you know, took off, and you're watching that. And then when I again coming back to Chicago, my buddy in Chicago, you know, was he was telling me about all these different boutique ones. And then I'd happen to be on the golf course with some finance guys who have this bourbon uh, out of, um, and there's, there's a cool story. They have a bourbon out of Chicago and I don't, I don't know. It's been a few years since I've seen this. So I don't know if they ever got it, you know, out into the marketplace, but it was basically the descendants of these famous mob, you know, you know, people from Chicago. And mm -hmm. so they had this whole, you know, nostalgic, you know, there's this room with all this memorabilia and, and, and the favorite bourbons that these guys used to drink back in the day kind of upped, right? But they're the ones that were, were telling me about the Angel's Envy and, and how you break it down. The liquor business basically, you know, it's per, once you hit, once you hit a plateau of cases sold or cases produced, you know, your exponential is really worth X. And so from the uh, financial side, I was like, huh, makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, bourbon takes off, so everybody jumped in. And then, uh, I, from what I understand too, please correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't it rare to find? Because what is it? There's only what, like roughly eight, six or eight main distilleries in the country. Yeah, that's correct. That is correct. Yeah. And, then, and the majority of the whiskey comes out of what is that? BMI or something like that out of Cincinnati. Uh, and uh, it's blended. Well, MGP in Lawrenceburg, <laughs> Indiana. Uh, MGP. That, that, that's on the rye whiskey side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rye whiskey. Okay. And now, then, it, then it's just the, the then a lot of distilleries just basically have their different you know, blending recipes and how long it ages for. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So how does and, that work? How does that work then though, as far as uh, it's, it, so if you're basically buying a label, then, you know, how do you, how do you take, is, is it literally just based on the blend? But once you get the product from, from the mass production, so to speak, how then do you turn it into something quality? How do you change the, how do you change the notes of it? 
Well, let's do this. Let's let's not talk about it. Let's actually taste a, a company uh, okay. that has done just that. Let's go to Barrel. Uh, okay. Barrel Batch uh, 15. Now, this won my 2018 American Whiskey of the Year. Uh, Barrel also won the San Francisco World Spirits Competition in um, 2017. And so what these guys do is that they buy stocks from other distilleries, and then they blend them in to make their own. So this is actually, this has whiskey in it from Indiana, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Oh, okay. Now, this is going to be a higher proof than that, um, the, the Henry McKenna, right? This is 106.52 proof. Okay. What was that McKenna? 100 proof. 100 proof. Okay. Yep. So then once they get the raw product then, right? I mean, how long is it aged once barrel gets the raw product or is it not aged at all? Well, it, it could be, it could be aged for whatever they negotiated on. Like they could get like, um, a stock of barrels that were aged for, um, 10 years and then they could hold on to them and age them in their warehouse. Like they have contract warehousing, you okay. know, and also what happens is, let's say, now I'm not saying this is the the distillery that sold it to them, but like George Dickel in Tennessee, uh, mm-hmm. they could say like, you'll take ownership of these barrels and we'll keep them in your warehouse and they can continue aging there under, uh, you know, basically a rental agreement or something like that. So there's... There, there are so many contracts like that that go on in American whiskey. It's ridiculous. But wouldn't it be? Isn't it then harder to change the? I mean, so you, you basically are, because it's not their recipe, then, right? So it's wherever right. you're getting it from, a recipe, and then they're changing the, they're, they're changing the distinct the notes or the flavors based on the barrel it's aged in and or how long they continue to age it. Yeah. So what they'll do is, is they like they kind of create like barrel. Barrel's a good example. They've been able to like create kind of like their house profile by by a particular a note that I consistently get in barrel products is marzipan, which is a kind of a French confectionery of like uh, almonds and honey paste kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And so like they kind of like blend to get that note, and it's a they've done a really good job with that to create like their own kind of like house, their own house style. Uh, so I, I, I'd say that, you know, but they're also unique. The majority of people are just buying liquid from another distillery yeah. and bottling it. And they don't give two flying fucks. If, if it's different, they're out there prom- pushing a brand. Um, it's a labeling deal, right? Exactly. I mean that, and it's like there's so many shenanigans that go on in in whiskey. I mean, it is a. Let me ask you this question: uh, Out of all the popular brands, right? Because you know, you know, branding is obviously huge. What's your favorite under the table, just quality bourbon? Evan, Williams, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm talking like fifteen under fifteen dollars. Um, you know, stuff coming out of Heaven Hill, man, is just money. You know, for for the value, Evan Williams bottled a bond. It's perfect. It's just it's perfect for the money. It's it's right. the white label of Evan Williams, and you just you can't beat it for the money. Uh, th- there are some other brands that kind of in that realm. Wild Turkey One Hundred One, great. So I was I was about to say, you know what? I recently and, and by recently, I don't know, must have been probably months ago, but uh, I was gifted a bottle of Wild Turkey, and you know you kind of forget about Wild Turkey sometimes. Yeah. And my goodness, it was just a good, solid, like end of the day. You know, just wanted just want a solid, nothing crazy, nothing special, but amazing. Like just, it was it was awesome. I was I was pleasant, very pleasantly surprised. Well, I'll tell you, Wild Turkey, they kind of get in this situation where, it, it and it goes back to marketing. I mean, I I know you felt this in the NFL, and marketing. I just feel like they just they tell stories they shouldn't. And people yeah. started like telling stories about Wild Turkey about being the biker bar, uh, the tough guy whiskey, and that gave them a really black eye for a good twenty years. And now that people are starting to recognize their quality again, that this is really good, they're getting away from like that kind of like kind of tough guy marketing aspect. Uh, yeah. People are getting back to that like shit. This is good. And you know what I had too, Wick? So there's a little, uh, there's a liquor store down in, uh, I think it's Spring Hill, Tennessee, right? And JB, you know, he's the one that told me about it over at the Whiskey House. And it has, dude has a crazy slice. That's actually where I, I got my first couple bottles of barrel, you know, cast and, and you know, uh, all that good stuff. But they, we came in, I was with my buddy from Chicago, and they had those little, you know, the minute, like one, the, let's just, like about a pint, I guess of the Jim Beam select that they were making back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I was like, Jim Beam, like I'm drinking Beam. And my buddy's like, trust me on this. You got like Jim Beam tried to make this little select, like kind of pint deal. It kind of fizzled out. It didn't go anywhere. He's like, but I'm telling you, it's amazing. So we picked up the last couple bottles they had of that. And boy, did I tell you that was, that, that ended up being one of those ones where I could get my friends and, and didn't let it, you know, kind of tucked in the back along with my old grandpa, 82, you know, so, you know, the begin the beginning of my kind of like curmudgeon state, because I when it comes to whiskey, I'm very much a curmudgeon. Like like I, I, I hate it when things change. Jim Beam Black, eight year old, was the was the beginning of that time for me when they took away the eight year old age statement. And by taking away the eight year old age statement, that meant that the the bottle no longer had to adhere to the minimum barrel in that batch was eight years old. And beam makes exceptional whiskey, exceptional, but they are so big that they have to move the cases. It's the same with Jack. It's the same with Jack Daniels. I I guarantee you that if Jack Daniels makers, Mark and Jim beam wanted to say, listen, we're going to forget the volume. We're going to forget like uh, selling a kajillion cases and focus on having the very best. Then I guarantee you, we would think of them in different lights. Oh, for sure. I mean, cause uh, what was it? Makers had the makers 46 that came out for a while that they tried to bump up into that, you know, to kind of compete with, uh, with the uh, single barrel and stuff like that. 
I thought it was delicious. Yeah, forty six is is fantastic. And then now they got the that now they have a private barrel selection where they do all these different stave things. But I'm telling you, I have had Maker's Mark that was twelve years old, and they and their and their like panels, they called it flawed. I because they're trying to meet a particular style, uh, in Maker's Mark. But I tasted it with like uh, seventy bourbon enthusiasts, and everybody loved it. And I'm yeah. tell, if Maker's Mark ever decided to come out with a 12, 20 year old bourbon, we would all like we would we would run to it so fast. It'd yeah. be so good. And that's and where says, yeah. and I was going to say, that's why like B Buffalo Trace, which has Blanton's and Pappy Van Winkle yeah. and Weller. That's why like we all give Buffalo Trace a really, really hard time because we can't find anything. But really, we should be looking at the way that they have modeled their bourbons, and like ask the question: Why isn't the rest of the of uh, the industry doing that? Because they put a focus on quality versus quantity. Their quantity yeah. products they put very little effort into it, like Benchmark, which ben Benchmark is god awful, but <laughs> god awful. I haven't gone down that road yet. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't need to. You don't need to, but uh, well, anyway, just, uh, give me a, send me your book with what to stick away from, and I'll and I'll take I'll take that done <laughs> done. So, what did you think of the barrel fifteen year old? It's good. It's definitely got a little more. You just got that more fire into it, right? It's got a little more kick. That's what you I mean. It's obviously proof slightly higher, but um, I don't know. There was something that that McHenry. It's almost it was almost sweet on the finish. Where this one's got a little bit of that burn, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, it's it's definitely it's definitely good. Like this is probably one that I would put a cube on just to kind of mellow it out a little bit or a little squirt of water like I like I know most people do. Now we're going to go go across the pond here and have a little bit of a uh, Irish whiskey. All right. Now this is not actually in stores. This is uh sent to me straight from Ireland. Uh this is the oldest release from uh Redbreast. And this is every, this is every whiskey drinker's whiskey, you know? So like you talk about like, um, you know, that's a player's coach, you know, that's yeah. a, that's a football guy. Like this is what all whiskey drinkers love. Like I'm not talking about just bourbon drinkers. I'm talking about yeah. people who are really into whiskey. Red breast is it just hits the spot and it's this this is the oldest uh release from Redbreast. Oh, this is amazing. Let me get your professional thoughts on that barrel one real quick. Well, I you know when I taste so bear, that particular release has done very well with me in blind tastings. But when I like you when I taste it next to the Henry McKenna that we just both just had, it 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 does not meet that kind of merit. Like the McKenna was quite a bit more complicated uh, while the barrel had like uh nuance and it was tasty, had some coconut, some chocolate, some marzipan and some spice. The McKenna is just butter, you know, <laughs> it's, just very butter. Like, it's butter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just, it's hard to explain. It's just good. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and so like I mean, if we're doing a taste off here between the McKenna and the barrel, uh, 
today I'm giving the edge to the McKenna. Yeah. All right, I'm excited for this. Mm. I'm not a big, I've, ne I've never gotten really into the Irish whiskeys, and this is delicious. So this is finished in a port cask? That's what I was, I was about to ask. What's that? You can definitely, yeah, I was going to say there's almost a, a sweet on the back end. Man. This is like, you know, and I think I think Irish whiskey gets kind of, a, it's a little bit like those, uh, like we were talking about Jack Daniels and Jim Beam kind of getting in that volume bucket. Irish whiskey survives by uh, basically St. Patty's Day, people going into bars and taking shots of Jameson and Bushmills, you know? <laughs> yeah, and now Conor McGregor. Oh, God. By the way, that's shit whiskey. I don't know if you're friends with Conor McGregor, but... I don't know. Person. You know, it's a funny story. So his manager actually was on our football team. Adi Attar, was, was, uh, I haven't spoken to him in years, but... Uh, he was a good buddy of mine in college. We played college football together. Now he's his manager. But I haven't, I haven't, heard, I haven't uh, tried the whatever it is. The um, I don't know proper what it's twelve. Proper twelve. I haven't tried it yet. But I tell you what, that dude's a marketing genius. Yeah, I mean, he he did something that no other celebrity in whiskey has done, and that he sold like a two two hundred fifty thousand cases like that. Yep. And ridiculous. And it tastes like horse piss. Like, I mean, it it, it, it it might be the worst, like, whiskey release to come out this century. Ever. I mean, it's everybody, bad. It is so everybody, bad. Everybody is drinking it. Everybody's buying it. It's like uh, it's like two-buck chuck, right? Yeah. But here's the thing, too. But, but here's the thing is, like, when I say that, people are just like, oh, you're a snob. You're, um, you know, you're an elitist. And, and then they're just pouring it in with Coke and like, you know, you know, yeah. I, I respect alcohol. I'm trying to get people to respect it. That's just trying to get people to get drunk. Yeah, no, for sure. That's, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, my wife and I, show, we, we, we have certain friends that come over. Well, you know, we got to put the good stuff to the back. You got to put like, I got to move because I got one buddy who'll come. He drinks seven and sevens, right? Yeah, he'll go. He'll go up and grab a you know a bottle of my Russells and just pour it in, you know. <laughs> or you'll go, you know, he'll just grab whatever's whatever's on the shelf. And you're like, oh, dude, that was like a hundred dollar bottle of bourbon. Why are you mixing it with Seven Up? Like you're killing uh, me here. That's tough. Uh, so yeah, so I keep I keep a stash for people. Same thing with like uh, with wine. We got friends by the end of the night. You know, they're they're just grabbing whatever's in the in the thing, and it's like let's put the we're gonna put these in the back of the fridge and the bottom right of the So I can see. So basically, keep keep a bottle of proper twelve on the side for your. For your that might be factor. that might not be a bad idea, and, and at the very so least, me, you, you. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say at the very least, you get to give a little bit of a little money back to your manager, the the manager who's a old college oh, but, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what what makes Irish whiskey? So I'm not up on my Irish. So what makes Irish whiskey? Irish whiskey versus a bourbon versus a scotch. Well, ba basically, Ireland, they're, they're blenders. They do a lot of blending. So they'll, like, take uh, a lot of different stocks and kind of blend them together. Uh, they also use a lot more pot stills than they do in, in American whiskey. So, you know, you get a, you, you get 
uh, and they also use used barrels. So in American whiskey, new charred oak barrels is kind of the way. In Ireland, it, it, it can be a used barrel. So there, there's a lot of things there that will make it different. You also will see like higher amounts of barley, uh, whereas in, in American whiskeys, you'll see higher amounts of corn. Now, they do use corn in, in, in Ireland, but barley in, in the United Kingdom um, is the is beloved. So what uh, now, I guess about a year or so ago, I read up on a company called Lost Distilleries. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I wrote about them in one of my books. Um, okay. I was about to ask you, is it is it legit? Like at the time I was like, eh, I don't know if I'm, I'm dropping, you know, four G's on a bottle of bourbon that I can't drink uh, or a bottle of whiskey. I'm sorry that I can't drink. But I mean, the story behind it is so cool to go find these lost distilleries with some, I think one of them is a 54 year old whiskey or something yeah. crazy like that. Yeah, I mean it's the lost distillery kind of cause. That's it's real, man. That 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 whiskey that they put out. I've had some of it, and and if you can if you can kick, are are you talking about like the lost distillery or or lock, lock L? No, lost. I I my stepdad sent me things, so I, and I, it was the lost. Basically, the company it was a couple big time, you know, spirit execs. And they came and they went back and they were they were finding these lost distilleries in yeah in Scotland and Ireland and like you know there might be one or two barrels that were left from these you know, bankrupt distilleries and and they're they sell them and they sell you the you know the, the pint basically mm-hmm. and then they give you a look because they their their philosophy is you know, you should be able to at least taste what you're buying but you this should be for your great grandkids so they get you yeah no I, I I've had some of that stuff and yeah it's real. Oh, yeah, it's Is real. It, I, I don't know if it was what, where it was at. I'm like, how are they finding these? You know, fifty. Well, that, I mean, that's just it. It's like they're they're all like, um, we all know about them. They kind of like exchange receipts, and they all like uh, those barrels. They're not just like hidden in like a barn or anything like that. They're accounted for. They they buy them. That whole story behind it. That's all marketing, spinning a story. Okay. Like there's, there's in America, there's a uh, series called Orphan Barrel, which is very, very yeah, popular. Love, love Orphan Barrel. The story behind that is like they just found these barrels, but the fact is they always knew where the barrels were, and <laughs> you know nobody else wanted them, so they called them orphans, and they marketing yeah. got involved and you know did their thing, and that is so like if you take away the story. I will tell you, in, in in Scotch, those those lost bottles, those those are phenomenal. I have never yeah. had, I've never had a bad one. And if you're only being asked to spend four thousand dollars on one, that's pretty, that's bad. a good that's that's a good deal. Yeah, uh, that's right. That was back when I wasn't overly familiar with it. And I was like, man, four thousand bottles for a bottle I can't drink. Like, come on. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know that they go for 50 grand uh, oh, wow. and, and, and the guy and the guy behind it, he had his daughters involved. Uh, one of his daughters was in my book, Whiskey Women, and uh, just just a really good family. They have since sold that company, but uh, now it's like now it's on like that other level. It's a part now of like Sazerac, which owns Buffalo Trace and Pappy Van Winkle. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, no, it's. I'm sure I, I never really got into scotch. Um, 
I just, you know, I, you have, I had a couple, my first experiences with scotch was just so piney. You know, I was just like, oh. Yeah, I and I think, and I think, I think that's why, like, Irish whiskey is acceptable for bourbon drinkers because there's yeah. no peat involved. Um, there's so much peat in scotch, whether it's blended in or it's coming straight from Lafroy, you know, or Isla. Uh, so... It's a less of a, a a lot of bourbon drinkers do not transfer over to scotch very well, you know. But I think which, that's what that's what actually drove me to bourbon because you know when I first it was uh, my you know, my very first whiskey experience was I got a someone gave me a bottle of Blue Label right, mm-hmm. and uh, and, I, and 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 I'd had a bottle of Black Label before, so I didn't know the difference. I had no no clue what the difference was. Black Label was delicious. <laughs> I took a swig of that blue label and it was like a trampoline. I was like, ah, <laughs> just couldn't, couldn't even take it anymore. I was like, I'm done. I'm done. This, this is whiskey. I'm done. And then, uh, then I learned the difference, obviously, with scotch and bourbon. They got into to more bourbon styles and stuff like that. So, uh, but yeah, I've had, I've had some good. I've had, you know, I've, then, then I've had scotches, which are which are good. But that lost the stories. That's what caught my eye. I was like, I'm not really a scotch guy, but I'm curious if it's that, if it is what it, if it is what it says it is. Yeah, I mean. That that particular one, absolutely. Like you, you can trust that one. And they do. I've had a lot of their stuff. And one of those competitions, like I, um, I picked their I picked their whiskey for best whiskey. And I mean, they've done they've done a great job uh, getting good stocks. Your, but most of that your, stuff. Oh, go ahead. What's your take on the uh, What's your take on the Japanese, like the Nikias and uh, okay? The Yama, so. Yama my yeah so nika yeah i i i my my opinion on the japanese whiskey is not very popular uh because they're not transparent about where their stuff comes from and they actually blend in a lot of stuff from uh scotland so you know people just kind of want to be like you know this stuff is really great well i'm like well you know what it's actually distilled in scotland and age there and i don't think that's fair to just say it's japanese whiskey but their laws and regulations in japan are really really soft uh and and i think they need to be held accountable for that you know but with that said yamazaki i mean it's good shit i mean (laughs) i enjoy drinking it (laughs) it's good shit wherever it comes from i enjoy drinking it yeah yeah my buddy uh yeah, that that that, that Nika, I got hooked up, connected. That that was that was good. Um, I was gonna say you going back to that orphan barrel. So I actually just had it. I had it. They were at my house in Nashville, but at 21, 22, and twenty three, and that was a fun taste to taste the difference. You know, going up there because I've always, I for the longest time, Barter House has been one of my favorite bourbons, and ninety percent of the places I go don't have Barter House. I've never even heard of Barter House, and um, and then, so to to get when I was you know through JB at the whiskey house, um, he's like, dude, if you like Barter House, you got to try Orphan Barrel. Obviously, Orphan Barrel you know makes Barter House, and uh, man, it was I, I loved it. You know what's interesting yeah. about that is like Barter House, Old Blowhard, uh, you know Red Rick, all of those. They you know to me they like really they got a lot of really good you know good aged whiskey. And then they filtered it. 
Like I wish, I wish that they did not filter it because what you tasted and what you loved, I think could have been a lot better than yeah, if, like deeper and richer. And yeah, I what mean, they, what they, they they did they they so they bottled it in Tullahoma, uh, Tennessee, and they have just different lines and and everything there. Okay, and it and it just it just got, you know, that whiskey where it was coming from was so beautiful and it, it it could have been so much better i guess that's kind of my feelings on it it's like uh it, it's like it's like taking adrian peterson and making him a a pass catching uh running back only <laughs> <laughs> well now you put it like that yeah <laughs> I, need, I need to get my I need to get my palate up i thought it was a no, it's good. It's good. It just could have been so much better. Oh, I love it. What was it? And so now Adrian's still in the league, by the way. And, yeah, he and, just signed with Detroit. And I, I think, you know, listen, I'm an, I'm an Oklahoma State uh, alum, and it's hard for me to, like, root for an Oklahoma Sooner. But, oh, man, yeah. but I root for Adrian Peterson every chance I can. You know what? It's hard not to. He runs so hard, so fast, and I. It's again. I've never seen anybody with that type of ability. Uh, it's you know, it's the same person. I mean, there's been a lot of running backs that are amazing. You take the Barry Sanders of the world, but Adrian has just been. I mean, you did. You're right. Even through all the ups and downs, you can't help but root for him because you know. I, you know, we we've got to know him over the years, and. He's, he literally is genuinely kind in his, in his, to his core and his heart. And, uh, you know, I know he's gone through some troubles and stuff, but you can't help but root for him because the dude, like, right when you think he's down and out, next thing you know, he breaks out. You know, he has like a 200 yard game and you're like, the guy still has it. So he's in Detroit and our old strength coach, Tom Canavy, is in Detroit. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if Adrian had a monster year just because he's back. You know, he'll be able to train with a guy he's very familiar with. Um, he's in a division he's very familiar with. Um, and you know, even though, you know, he's getting up there, goodness, what is this year? 13 or 14 or 15 for him. Yeah. Uh, the guy, the guy, I'm telling you, he's just, he's a, he's phenomenal. I've never seen a guy eat that can eat two quarts of cold stone a day during training camp and be like 1% body fat. It blows my mind. <laughs> you know, but, but it is what he, he is one guy that gets the like sports, uh, the sports talking heads to like kind of go off and talk about, and they all give their opinion on them. And I'm just curious, you know, from a long, as, as a long time NFL player, what, what was your thoughts on, on the sports media? Because I kind of, I kind of listened to them a little bit and they almost talk about you guys. Like, like you're not human, you know, like you're. That's the, that's the problem, right? I think, people and fans and, and again we we know what we sign up for but when a guy gets cut for example it's the same as getting fired so imagine if like dude just like google where you're like you know you had a bad week coding and you're just like boom you're out you know like it, it affects families and unfortunately in sports people just think oh this guy cut maybe because he's going to get picked up by another team and so i think people do lose that there's a human factor of a, if a guy gets cut he loses the job he gets hurt like that's that's a detriment to his his career. It's a detriment to his the way of living. It's his family. He's supporting his wife, his kids. There's so many emotions that go into it. And then there's just the fact that, you know, for me, 
reason I, one of the reasons I never got into broadcasting, because I'm not going to judge people off their before. Yes, I play the game and I could, I could critique what I think is going on, but I'm definitely not in that huddle. Right. So I don't know what the play call, I don't know what the person's particular assignment is. Sometimes there's blatant errors that you know, anybody can see, but for me, I mean, those, you're going to get such an earful of it on uh, you know, Monday or Tuesday when you get back into the office from your coaches that, you know, the last thing I need to hear it from is the media. But I approach the media kind of different. You know, some people kind of shied away, you know, gave them boilerplate answers. I was just honest with them. So I always, you know, I always told it how it was. I own I owned my crap if I if I had a bad game or messed up or anything. And I just expected the same from them. So I always had great relationships with our beat writers and a lot of the national people just because they knew I was going to give them, I wasn't going to give them boilerplate stuff. I was going to give them my true honest opinion uh, and assessments of the game. And all I asked from there was was fair coverage back at me. You know what I mean? Like, if you're going to take guys, and that's the other thing. Everybody wants these guys for the soundbite and the good, and they want the interview when they're doing great. But then the first one to throw them under the bus. So if if the athletes are going to be you know good enough and kind enough to give you heartfelt, honest access to themselves and to the game and their their opinions, then you know every once in a while cut them some slack. And I think I think you would see a much better relationship with media and athletes um, just because the media does get painted as you know. As, as the enemy in the locker rooms and stuff like that, because they're trying to pry information. And, and again, I, we know that they have a job to do, right. That's why I always was forthright and honest and, and just kind of treated like, Hey, I'm just, I'm going to be myself. I just expect you to treat me with kindness and fairness and we can go on. Well, there's also another layer to it today, especially. And that is like when you have a, after the sound bite comes out, you have, you know, 45 different shows like analyzing, the uh the soundbite you know yeah you know that and that, so what does that do that doesn't actually give people more access to the to the game or more access to the players that makes people pull back i remember once they started putting cameras in the locker room and then you know yeah you, you, it's just like the whole dynamic kind of changed because you you didn't really have time to decompress you know you, you, you know i remember then like all this stuff you know they gave the nfl gave reporters and everybody and fans more access to the locker room but then people were offended by what they wanted by what they heard and it's like the guys never changed. The locker room didn't change. People just now were hearing or seeing things that they necessarily, you know, didn't didn't buy because you know when you got fifty three alpha males in a room, it's not like corporate America. You know, everybody makes fun of everything. You you, you tease each other. Nothing's off limits because that's the only way to keep egos in check, right? And, and to move forward. And and so sometimes more access isn't necessarily good because people don't understand that environment, right? And um, and it doesn't fit into what they think. And so I think you saw some backlash there, but then what happens is players pull back and, and now players don't want to be criticized. Don't want, and then now social media is a whole different ball of wax. So, you know, people are going to post their own crap on social media and then you got to pull that. So yeah, I'd say what the, uh, that whole balance is, is different. And, and unfortunately I think, you know, it, it's a man, it's still mandatory that everybody has to speak to the media. So I think, you know, and, I, and on the teams that I, you know, that did a good job handling it. You know, the guys had media training. And so I think the NFL could, could constantly do that, even in college, right? Under, teaching these guys that the media doesn't necessarily have to be the enemy. Um, be honest with them, be forthright, but you don't necessarily have to answer everything. And, and let's be honest, what you put out there, you need to own. And and if you do that, no one can really make stuff up if you're honest and, and you just own what you do. And and then, and then at the same time, you have the right then to hold the media accountable. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's work like that. Both sides would be better off for it and and the good ones do the good beat writers have those personal relationships with guys i mean you look at jay glazer right he's one of my dearest friends and uh that dude you know 
always had the scoopage and everything, you know, that he needed, but he did it in a way that was respectful. He'd call guys up, hey, what's up, man? I heard this. Can can I use it? Or he would come, you know, you're hanging out. Like, you had a personal relationship, and Jay at the same time would be just as quick to go to bat for his guys, you know, and so there was that give and take, and that's why he gets so many great stories because guys trust him. That guy also works out. Like, I mean, like, I mean, I, I look at such a meat stick. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, dude, your neck is like, like the size of my whole body. <laughs> like, like, Jay, you're like five, six, bro. I don't think you're going to look like that. <laughs> you know, when we talk no, about, ac- I- when we talk about access to the locker room, man, you know, one of the, I, I think kind of, and it may not have been the beginning, but for 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 the public to see it, when when the when the Minnesota versus New Orleans NFC Championship game got shared, the the locker room moments got shared about what quote Bounty Gate got shared. That was the first time that I had heard as a as a fan I'd heard those things, and that that game like and I told you before we came on that game like ate me alive because I was a Minnesota fan, partly because of Brett Favre, but because of my best friend was such a, such a Minnesota fan. And I was rooting for it, for that game so much for him. And, and I just remember listening to the tapes of Bounty Gate and all that stuff. And I was like, that seems kind of like how I thought the NFL was. And not, I'm not really surprised, you know? Hey, you know what? I, I tell people this, I, you know, fans and, and players, everybody that, you know, it, it's an excuse. But how did that thing get stopped? Refs just have to f- throw flags. If, if it was illegal, they should have thrown the flag. And guess what? You, you flag it enough, they're going to stop doing it, right? Because you're gonna, you're gonna, it's going to change the tide of the game. That game was crazy. Um, I, I actually get more upset about the, uh, the fourth and one over the top. Greenway comes up, hits him. The guy totally fumbled the ball backwards, right? Stopped short. Then puts it forward and they get the first down and you can't advance, you can't advance a fumble on, on fourth, you know? So that I always get mad about that. I'm like, that's ridiculous. And that joke of a PI call, but I don't think they're here or there. Um, so but yeah, it's one of those games. They know what they, I think it sucked for us is that we knew if we win that game, we win the super bowl. There was no doubt about it. Like we win that game. That that's, that's the super bowl. Uh, you know, but with the league to go back and then change overtime rules because of that game, I'm like, but I always think uh, – I think the problem, that part that, that takes the most out of not even just that game, is that that team, if we would have won the if we would have won the uh, Super Bowl that year, that 2019 probably goes down as one of the best teams in NFL history. Uh, just across the board, I mean, that we – I mean, Brett was scoring points like crazy. I mean, our defense was insane. I, you know, I think – I don't even know what we – we, we gave up like 71 yards rushing. I, you know, we, we were just stacked up front. Um so yeah, I just for me, I look at the, the longevity. You kind of get lost in translation. You know, it's a great NFC Championship game, you know, Banner Gate. But uh, that team was an amazing team. It was so much fun to be on that team. And unfortunately, we didn't we didn't win. And um, you know, it is what it is. But yeah, as far as Banner Gate, I blame the refs. Just throw the flag. That's all you got to do, and it's over. But hey, it is what it is. I mean, I've been on teams before where you so-called had a price on somebody, and uh, you know, and and there's. I mean, if you think about it, it's it's actually. You know, it's like war, right? Take out the general, you got a better chance of winning. You take out, you take out the starting quarterback, and you got to play with a backup. Your chances of winning just went through the roof. So actually, I was in the military, and when we when we went into Iraq, we were giving a deck of cards. They gave us a deck of cards with all of the people to like kill this guy, 
you're good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's so, I mean, you're, you're exactly right about like the military and, and I just, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, it's like, here we are, we're, we're, we're in a locker room and you're talking about people, um, who literally make millions of dollars in, in, in the lowest paid persons making 200 to $500,000. And you're saying the reward is a thousand dollar, a thousand dollars. I mean, yeah, it makes no sense. Financially makes no sense. The incentive isn't necessary. The financial gain. Somebody just usually throws that on there to make it like, Oh, that's, that's great. Um, but the incentive, it, it's the competition, right? It is. It, and, you know, hindsight, I, and I try to look, you know, I'll play devil's advocate on it again. Um, it, when, it, when it all came out, you're like, well, it doesn't mean no good to cry about it now. You know, it's just, it's, 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 it's just like, I mean, it's like the Bill Bell, it's like the Patriots, right? Okay, you're going to find me a million dollars. If you told them in the beginning of the year, hey, we're going to find you a million dollars, we're going to take three draft picks, but you're going to win the Super Bowl. Sign me up, you know? So unless you do something about it that changes the course of, you know, that changes their course of action, for example, with the Colts thing, with the de with the deflated balls, the way you cure that, New England is no matter what the rules like boxing, right? If you go into a, a boxing match under a set of signed rules and agreements, no matter what the, the the violation is, big or small, it's a disqualification, automatic disqualification. So if the NFL would have said, "Hey, listen, uh, New England, you're disqualified. Colts are going to the Super Bowl." Well, guess what? That, that that pretty much sets everything straight. So the same thing to come back after after we lose and the Saints win the Super Bowl, and they're going to slap them on the wrist and say, hey, we'll deflate gate and then bring up the what ifs. And the reality comes down to if the refs now are going to come back and the league's going to say all those are penalties, well, the refs should have thrown the flag because what was that, six or seven times they hit them. So that's, you know, times that by 15. You got, you got, you got a couple hundred yards of penalties and it changes the outcome of the game. So... You know, it is what it is, and you move forward. But I, I look at it that matter of fact. So you know, it doesn't it doesn't do any good to go behind it. But you can also take it as a matter of respect that Brett was that big of a threat that they felt the only way possible to win was they had to injure him, and they still shouldn't have won that game. Yeah, that is true. And they didn't. I mean, they they hurt his ankle, but that guy just kept showing up, man. He's a stud. He's an absolute stud. Uh. I love I love I miss him. I miss watching him play. I miss watching you play. Let's uh let's get to that next uh whiskey. Uh now this is Thomas Handy from 2019. This won my best rye of last year. Now rye whiskey is a different uh is a different category than than bourbon. Uh it has to be at least 51% rye where bourbon has to be 51% corn. But rye is not protected by the United States. It can be made anywhere in the world. That I did not know. So it's actually, there's a lot of good rye coming out of Finland, Canada, and elsewhere. I'm going to take a stab and say this is the highest proof one we have as well, right? Uh, yeah, this is going to come in at 100 and some change. Yeah. I think that's probably a common misconception too, with with just the, you know, what's the word actually, a trendy bourbon drinker, right? Is they just call whiskey bourbon? Now, now it's like just the cool thing, like oh, I'll take a bourbon. Like, 
you know, it's like, well, what are you drinking? I'm drinking, I'm drinking bullet. Well, you know, it's a rye. You ever drink a bullet rye, you know? So I think, you know, kind of, you know, understanding, but now it's, it's almost like, you know, growing up, we called everything a Coke. What kind of Coke you want? I'll, I'll have a seven <laughs> I'll have a bourbon. What kind of bourbon you want? Well, yeah, a, a, a little bit of the problem is, is a lot of these brands will have a bourbon on their label and they'll have a rye. And so, like, there's, I just don't think they do a good job of, of like protecting, um, their their mainstay brands. Yeah, but this is yeah. this is from the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection, one of yeah. the hardest things to get every year. And um, as I taste this, and I tasted it a couple of minutes ago, I'm still feeling it finish on my palate. It's 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 fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it stays there. So, you know, one of the, one of actually the few I haven't, I haven't had, don't have, I don't own too many rides, but I got that, I got a whistle pick 15 year. Oh, yeah. And that, they, that is a smooth, smooth drink there. So, now that is actually a Canadian rye whiskey. Yeah. They bottle it in that. Vermont and uh, Canada, man, they make a lot of really good rye. So why is it that I, I tend to feel like Canadian whiskers are slightly sweeter in a profile? What like what what are they doing up there? So Canadian the- Canadians uh, are allowed to add up to nine point oh nine percent of uh, other things. So they often will add things like sherry or brandies, uh, but okay. basically that they can change they can change it up uh, quite a bit more, and they tend to be more blenders. So they will. They will distill uh, the grains wholly and and then blend the grains together. So they'll blend like a distillate of rye and a distillate of corn or a bourbon mash bill uh, together and then add like uh, port, sherry, or whatever. Now, that's not good or bad. That's just how they do things. Uh, they're, yep. very, they're very, very different. Now, I will say that I do have a... I have a guest coming on the show. We're going to drink all Canadian whiskey. She is a female uh, Canadian uh, monster truck driver. Uh, her name is Cynthia Gutierrez. And I mean, I don't know, but I love monster trucks with my boy. Like I love watching monster trucks and she's like, she's the best monster truck driver. Oh, wow. Okay. I remember. So I haven't seen monster trucks in years, but when I was in college, they used to have the big monster truck thing at our dome. And so we'd always go there every year. But, I mean, you could literally be there for like 15 minutes, and it was like carbon monoxide poisoning. Like, <laughs> I'm like, why are you putting monster trucks in a dome? It made no sense, right? Like, no sense. <laughs> and uh, you come out there, it looked like you were huffing paint because you had black crap all over your face. <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, you, you were in a dome in Minnesota, and that thing didn't work out so well toward the end. Oh, gee, many crazy. That was the weirdest day. To tell you what, to have the, the dome collapse, that whole year was a crazy year. 2010, as great as, I was actually talking to uh, one of the sports writers the other day, and I was talking to him, tell you, we were laughing about, like, how great 2009 was. 2010 was was equally, it was its polar opposite, right? It was just like, 2009 was so epic, 2010 was such an epic fail. Like, it was just all things went down from, I mean, you just name it. But the roof collapsed, and I just remember sitting there, like in Detroit on a Tuesday night, and I'm like, "What? Playing New York?" I'm like, "This makes no sense at all. What are we doing?" And uh, 
yeah, the, the, the Dome Clabs, and then we're playing at the Minnesota Stadium, you know, the Gover Stadium, craziness. Yeah, that was that was the, that was the six and ten year, right? Yeah, yeah, so much hopes. I think we all thought we were going back. Oh, sorry, that's my camera. I think we all thought we were going back to you know at least the championship game and going to the Super Bowl. And that's what my advice to like most of these guys, you know. That's but but that's what makes the cool, or I should say, that's what makes the NFL cool. And I try to tell guys is that, you know, here we are, borderline thinking we're, we should have won the Super Bowl the year before. We bring the same team back, and through injury and just you know who knows what, our team, you know, we go six and ten. I didn't I didn't see the NFC Championship game or Super Bowl till my last year, and this is nine years later, you know, or, I, or seven years later. Sorry, and uh, but that's what makes the NFL so cool is that it's constantly changing. It's every year teams have a legit chance minus the one minus the teams that you know just aren't good right yeah um, but i mean there's 12 to 15 teams every single year that have a legit chance of winning the super bowl and i think mm -hmm. that's what makes this you know so good is versus like basketball where you see you know dynasties run run it you know you take new england i think that's why new england's so special because to do that in an era of you know free agency drafts trades and to be able with salary caps to the roof to be able to get out and grab the best players to for have them to be consistently where they've been at every year is so impressive because you know, like I said, my experience was so different. You know, we had we had such a great run. We get one game short of the uh the championship and then I don't see the championship for, you know, seven years. Wow. So what do you think about like how the NFL is handling uh COVID and everything right now? I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, our old, our old trainer's the head of the, the testing stuff. I, but it's the, I mean, again, you have such an organization with so much power and pulling money um, that, you know, we'll see. But once games start, you know, I guess you're only as safe as people are is when they're at home, you know. And, I mean, you got to look at it as, as you know, it's your, it's, your, it's your job, it's your life. But I was actually a little surprised they didn't try to pull off some sort of a bubble like the, the NBA and hockey did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You just move your team into the team hotel and say, here, this is where we're at for the next four months, you know, four or five months. This is where you're at. You don't leave. You don't come out. You know, it is what it is. Um, and then you can control travel and teams. And, if you know, I guess, you know, stadiums aren't going to have fans. Uh, so I'm a little, so I, I thought maybe they might go to that model. They didn't. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But uh, it's going to be unfortunate. I think this year it's, it'll be unfortunate if, it, if a star player gets COVID and he's out for two weeks. Now, granted, you have you have injuries every year, right? But this is something that, you know, you can be perfectly healthy, do everything you're right to stay safe, and somebody else can can affect you. So it's gonna be it's gonna be weird. You would hate to see a team, you know, like let's say the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, what if God would be Patrick Mahomes were to get sick or something like that? That drastically changes their course of of what their season should have been. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting. But I mean, now too, I guess there's too much money. There's too much money not to play. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it comes down to the money. But I mean, like. If you take a look at like what Lincoln Riley said from Oklahoma this week, uh, and that is that like he's not going to disclose like uh, what his uh, players got. Like they didn't get like a they didn't get a, a positive. He's not going to disclose that. Um, and I, I'm wondering, like, I mean, if I'm if I'm an NFL coach, you know, I'm not going to say like my I've got X amount of players out on COVID. You know, I'm 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 not going to say that stuff. Well, I think it's going to be a combination, right? The injury report you got to give something, but it's also going to be you know HIPAA. You know, HIPAA laws are going to determine exactly how much you can give out, anyways. Yeah. You know, I 
if I'm a coach, I'm the, I'm more terrified. I'm more terrified to be a coach. You know, players are in pretty good shape. So, you know, by all intents of what the science is saying, they should be able to get through it, you know, okay. Um, you know, I, hey, I don't know. but Jared, Jared, give me one second. I need to close a, a blind here. Like, I'm, like, turning into, like, a no fucking pastry over here. Give me, <laughs> give me one second. Sounds good. Are we good on time, by the way? Are we good? Yep. Yep. All right. So, so yeah, so I think oh go ahead. Uh, no, no. Hop back into it. Yeah, yeah. I think I just think I think it's one of those it's a weird deal and, and I respect all those players that opted out too, because honestly if I was playing I, I probably would I probably would have opted out because health I think is is number one. Um but it just it, it, it that's that's the deal, right? You it's a different people are at different places in their in their career. That's why I say the whole thing. I would have liked to see the league move to spring. I think, you know, pushing football to spring would be great because then, you know, you get another six months to get kind of some protocol and get everything kind of, you know, shaped up. We're in such, we're such, we're less than a year into a world pandemic. And to think that we have this thing figured out is kind of crazy. Um, so I think, you know, it would have been cool to see him go to the spring, but, um, but, you know, again, I think the NFL has always found a way. I mean, the NFL has so many resources and so many medical resources as well. I, I got to be honest, you know, playing there, myself, my family, we always had everything at our fingertips. So I don't think from a medical standpoint, people are going to be concerned. They're going to get whatever the best treatment is, the best advice is. And so with that standpoint, I mean, um, it's going to be, I, I tell you the biggest, the biggest impact is going to be no fans. It, yeah. it is going to be hard for me. It would have been so hard to play with no fans from, especially from a defensive standpoint. And now you're taking home field advantage away. There's critical moments in third downs and, and you know, short distances that the crowd plays an instrumental you know now offenses are going to be able to communicate freely so it really kind of is shifts i mean the, the defenses are playing a little bit behind the eight ball and uh we'll see if that has a has any type of mountain and plus you know a lot of players like myself are emotional right so the emotion of the game the, the hypeness of the crowd really fed into that adrenaline and fed into what you were doing and if you're out there and it's just kind of like practice and you're not playing well you're like ah this is ridiculous so well, it'll be interesting to see if, if 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 the guys can you know mentally rise above that and still put on the same performances. So, as you look into the league right now, who is your favorite defensive end? So, I do have to say, uh, Daniel Hunter from Minnesota is an absolute monster. He, I heard he just got put on IR for a few weeks, so uh, hopefully he's okay. But that dude is a three-down player. Uh, he really is. He's a he's an absolute stud. He's long. He's lengthy. He reminds me a lot of like Julius Peppers, just the way he can move Ooh. his body. Um, I love his I love his technique, and he's been flying under the radar. I think he only had maybe have one or two Pro Bowls in him, but the dude's had multiple. You know, I think he's the youngest player to ever be over 50 plus sacks in in such a short time. Uh, the, the kid is legit, and he's just he's a quiet. I've only met him once briefly, but everybody I know in Minnesota says he's just such an amazing kid and much, uh, you know, great, great player. So he, he's obviously very impressive. Um, to be honest, I don't watch a whole lot of football anymore just because it's, I don't know, it's just kind of not, just not the same game as it used to be. Um, uh, that, and I just have never really been a fan. I played enough of it, so I don't really watch it. <laughs> the cheese were, were fun to watch, right? It was, it yeah, was work. Just, it was work. One day I'm going to hang yeah, up whiskey and I'm not going to drink anymore. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but yeah, I think he's probably, he's got to probably be my top defensive end. You know, Von Miller, that guy, he's, a, he's, he's, a, you know, he's not a D man, but 
from a pass rusher standpoint, still an amazing guy. Understands he, you know, Von Miller understands his strengths and he sticks with them. You never see him. I out think of I think Von Miller just retired. Did he retire? No, I think he tore his ankle up pretty good. But did he, if he just retired, um, you know, right? Nah, him. yeah, like, no, no, he no, uh, no. There was a rumor he retired. He's just oh, out okay. for this. He, he's out for the season. He tore his ankle up, but uh, yeah, man, that guy. That, uh, he's a stud player as well. Yeah, I mean, he he's definitely a difference maker, much like you, for sure. One of the young, I know a young guy I really like is Bosa out of San Francisco. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think he gets a lot of credit for being for his total game as well. You know, he's I mean, maybe I don't know if he was double digits this year, last year in sacks or not, but he's a decent pass rusher. But he's just relentless, and I like watching relentless players and, and guys that never give up and and are you know are again three four down players. You know, and I and I think that's like that's what I loved about you and I loved about Favre is that there was never any quit never any quit and like man if somebody kicked you or whatever you got up and you fucking grabbed their throat or whatever <laughs> you just did your thing we used to get tight you know you know tight hands and if you accidentally hit them in the throat well hey it happens yeah <laughs> man it, it, it's such a privilege to to chat with you now I, I gotta I gotta ask you, what was your favorite whiskey of the night oh. that you had? Honestly, that, that McKenna, that the Henry McKenna is gotta be one for number one for me. And then honestly, it's a it's a toss up. These uh this rye and that red breast are they are they are delicious. Neck and neck, uh, huh? Yeah, well I think I think the red breast that I might take it just a little bit because like you said, it just kinda I don't know. It's just something. There's, there's, there's multitudes to it, right? There's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, red, red. The red breast one is one you. I, I feel like you need to. You need to sit down with it, and analyze it for for a little bit. You know. Yeah, that, but this rye. I mean, this rye. I get different. I get. I honestly, you get somebody. Like you said, it kind of changes as you take it back. Yeah. Right. It has that. It has a long finish, almost. I don't want to say waxy, but it, like it's almost waxy because it like just sits on you for a minute. Uh, I like waxy. Yeah, I can go with that. And uh, but yeah, and to me, I thought I thought the barrel, the barrel just had that had that sharpness that you know. Again, I think I bet if I tasted that barrel against the the rye, where they're a little similar proofed. I probably have a different opinion, but like you said, coming off that that McKenna, where it's just just like butter, it's just like oh, like coats your mouth. Yeah. You just want to bathe. To where now you're like, well, then when it kind of hits you a little bit. So, but yeah, I think I got to go with that McKenna. Um, and then yeah, I think that red breast and that rye are, are pretty much a toss up for me. Good problems to have. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you just created a bigger problem. Now I got to go on the internet and see if I can find these bottles. <laughs> Well, I can help you out with that. I'll make sure you get. I'll make. I'll. I'll uh, I. We will refill the uh, the supply I sent you, because I didn't oh, send you much, because I'm out of my good bottles, and kind of like I emailed you, like oh, uh, I fucked it. I fucked it all up. But it's all right. I, I appreciate. It. I see. Uh, <laughs> I like the little taste. It's going to be great. But yeah, now 
JB over at the Whiskey House is going to have some new uh, new requests from me. Hey, JB. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, so tell me, what are you up to these days? Man, honestly, not much. We just we're, we're hanging out. Um, you know, kids are doing remote learning, so that right. We've been at a lake house, you know, for the summer. You know, wake surfing. If you saw that picture, yeah, really got in. Been wake surfing for a while, but I really got into it for some reason this summer. Like, started watching YouTube videos and calling on my surfing buddies and getting tips. And uh, but my probably my wife, you know, finally learned how to drive the boat. So now. She's, now it's awesome. I don't have to find, I don't have to bum a ride, you know, for people. So we go out, we're just, we're just, you know, on the lake, fishing, surfing, hanging out, kids are doing school. And, uh, you know, I was, I was curling, curling's off, you know, we're not doing curling. Wait, right wait, now. wait, wait, <laughs> curling like the, the Olympic oh, yeah. sport? Yeah, me, Keith Bullard, Mike, Mark Bolger, and uh, Michael Roos, and then Jason Smith was our, was our skip. For the last couple of years, we've been, we had a curling team last two seasons and, uh, been trying to qualify for the olympics and curling and now COVID hit so uh, we're trying to figure out what what that whole thing looks like and when we can get back to action on that but a little funny story is that uh i got my first year i got i got asked to be an alternate uh with rich runin um and we ended up taking the second place at, at national so I, technically i have a second place silver medal as a national curler wow now i, I would so, imagine like with all the surgeries you've had that the bending over and the pushing with the broom, that might be yeah. hard. You know what? It's a lot harder than you thought. Like, I, we took it because we thought we, we chose that because we thought it was going to be the easier sport. It ended up being harder than we thought. Lucky for me, I got out of the league with minimal surge. I had my shoulder uh, done, you know, my labrum and AC joint, and then I uh, had a knee scope. But that's all I had as far as surgeries. Uh, blew my L5 out my last two years twice. So that sucked, but um, I mean that's interesting. Uh, you say that it's like it's like nonchalant. Like I only had seventeen. I only had like seven surgeries, <laughs> and I blew out like two discs in my in my back. But uh, yeah, I mean I, that was like nothing. I mean for, yeah, I was, I, for me, was, I'm like like my body's like collapsing hearing that. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I was I'm, I'm one of the healthy ones, right? I know guys. <laughs> every day every week having something operated on so but yeah it's that's about it man just living life and uh, and having fun well so here we have uh an alternate uh curler for the olympics is that right well no 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 i, I was an alternate on the uh uh was i guess two years ago on the national i, I have a silver medal from nationals in curling so you I'm have trying, a, you have olympic, yes. you have olympic potential <laughs> i hope so hey I'm trying to make the Olympics, but I will gladly be an alternate. Just throwing that out there, USA Curling. If you need a fun guy for an alternate who can curl, I'm your guy. It's funny. <laughs> like my uh, my editor is on the women's curling team. One of my oh, editors yeah. from uh, a book I did. Yeah, she's on the women's curling okay. team. So I know people. Yeah, dude, it's a it's a good sport. Uh, we've, been, we've we've been accepted with open arms, and I'll tell you what, now that's a beer drinking crowd, but. Uh, you know, curling, you know, curling and, and drinking goes hand in hand. So we got to get them on the bourbon uh, train. Yeah, they may end up falling over because they don't know their limits. <laughs> well, they, you got to do it after. The game. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Jared. Uh, like I said from the top and throughout, like I was a huge fan. Uh, I loved watching you play, and I have no doubt you are uh, an NFL Hall of Famer. Um, I believe you to be a first ballot. Uh, I hope you don't have to go through the rigmarole that they've made other people go through, but you are 
one of the greatest at your position, and I enjoyed watching you play, and you're even a better person to talk to. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What a, it's been a great show, and uh, I love when I can taste something delicious and learn a lot too. So, cheers to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did doing it because <laughs> I've always loved Jared Allen. Watching that guy play, it was like watching a a man possessed. To be honest with you, like watching a man possessed. It's just like tackling everybody all the time. I thought that was so cool. So thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, If you wouldn't mind, give us a subscribe and give us a review on Apple uh, Podcasts or however you listen to your podcast. It helps me with the algorithms and and, uh, getting people to uh, tune into this podcast who might not otherwise. And if you can, give us a follow on social media. Got a lot of cool things going on to include... To include my involvement with the Speed Museum and the Art of Bourbon, go check that out at artofbourbon.org. Hey, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Be safe out there. No licking handrails, uh, trash cans. And remember, vodka sucks unless it's being used for hand sanitizer. Cheers. You've been listening to The Fred Minnick Show, brought to you by Beeline. Visit findyoursippingpoint.com by Michter's American Whiskies and by 291 Colorado Whiskey. For more information on Fred's books, articles, and more, just go to fredminnick.com. Fred Minnick.